welcome to How Did You Get Here, a career path podcast. This week, we're talking about being a traffic engineer. Hello, uh, my name is Josh. I have been a traffic engineer for just about a decade now. And kind of a funny story how I wanted slash got Josh to come on, y'all. Um, I <laughs> made a joke about how... Uh, it feels like sometimes the traffic lights are just ran by little elves. <laughs> At least I know a lot of kids growing up believed in that too, <laughs> where it's like there's little men in the traffic lights that control it. Um, I think there's also a lot of myths around traffic engineering and like things like, uh, you know, them having sensors underneath at certain stop points and things like that um, in the pavement. But anyways, uh, I'm going to go out on the limb and say, like I do with all my guests, that you did not suddenly want to be a traffic engineer when you were a child so no what did you, <laughs> um, you want to be when you grew up I will I will say there are definitely a lot of myths about how traffic lights work and yes. hopefully we can we can both debunk a few of them and also validate a few of them so we'll try to do a little bit of traffic myth myth busters here um, I did not start out wanting to be a traffic engineer, and I think if I ever met anybody that said that is what they want to be, I'd go, really? I don't, I don't know about that. It's a, it's a very niche industry. It's a very niche field. Um, I, I got the chance to go to space camp in Huntsville, Alabama when I was in fifth grade, and I absolutely loved every second of that. Um, and I think for a long time that really influenced. I, I I don't know that I necessarily thought I'd ever be an astronaut, um, because I knew that I did not have the uh, physical and strength capabilities to ever get there. Um, I'm you know a dorky little nerd that loved playing video games as a kid, and you know outside was a big scary place. But I think that that is what really got me into the idea of trying new scientific things. There was a, there was a, an, an after school science club that I also did in elementary school that looked at constellations and charting stars. And like I said, we got to go to space camp in fifth grade. And I think a lot of that got me into really the idea of space is the coolest thing. And I would love to do something with it one day that didn't necessarily pan out, but I think if everybody's dreams in fifth grade panned out, this would be a very, very different world. So <laughs> <laughs> We'd have a world full of uh, ballerinas and uh, fire, maybe firefighters, maybe. Yeah, probably uh, a lot of firefighters. Yeah, yeah, maybe some video game uh, testers because no one, you know, in the 80s and 90s really knew what that meant. I definitely <laughs> thought that was cool back then, too. At, at one point, I, I can distinctly say I wrote a letter to Nintendo Power asking if, if I could be a game tester. I wonder if I still have it somewhere, but yeah, that was a kid. I did that as a kid. Uh, it will not shock you to hear I did not get a response back. But you know what? That's uh, <laughs> you know. It was my first job rejection, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your actual first job? My first actual job did not come until high school. Um, my oh, dad. Yeah, no <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's more reasonable. My so my dad. Um, is uh you know he's he's had a career for a very long time in audio and video uh, equipment whether it's you know something as large as home theaters or something as small as you know a little 
stereo system. He was building transistor radios when he was six years old. Like it was something he was always into and he wound up building a, a, a career out of both selling the equipment and being really good at configuring a system and just making everything sound incredible. And when I was in high school, he had bounced around a couple different local shops here in the Metro Detroit area. And, um, at the time, and I'm really going to date myself here, in the early 2000s, there was um, the technology of um, a couple different companies put this out. It was a programmable uh, remote control where instead of having a remote for your TV and your speakers and your DVD player and your MP3 box and you know the seven other things, because everything was a box at one point in time that had to be separate, um, uh, a couple different companies, like I think Philips made one, I think Panasonic made one. There may have been a couple others. It was uh, a, a remote that had a simple Palm Pilot style touchscreen, and you could configure that device to have all of the infrared commands that all of your actual remotes would do. So the 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 store that my dad was working at in uh, the summer between sophomore and junior year of high school, which would have been two thousand three. So I'm approximately 9,000 years old. Um, they started selling this and my dad brought up the idea of, you know, I could, you know, have a summer job and I'd be the one programming it. Uh, I turned out really well. Um, you know, it, it was, it was definitely good money for, for, you know, a 16 year old at the time. Um, it was fairly easy to understand. It was just, you know, they gave me a, a little laptop at that time and it had uh, some programming stuff on it. And I'd configure each customer that they were setting up a new, uh, system for, and I'd go assist them on installation day and make sure everything worked. And that was it. And I could do cutesy little buttons and graphics and all kinds of things, depending on the model of remote that the person had purchased. And it was, instead of having half a dozen remotes, you had that one single one. Yeah. That's uh, you're not aging yourself that much because I remember days of the ye old universal remote. So <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> I just remember people like not stealing them, but they would, uh, you know, try to prank their friends by getting real close to their windows and like changing the TV channel from outside there. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. I can, I could definitely believe that. And like, yeah, look the way, the way some of that worked, it was very funny, like how universal some of the, the individual remote controls would work. And it's like, I could make you know, like I, at the time I, I found great enjoyment and like, I could turn a Sony TV off, even though it's a Panasonic remote, ha ha, kind of thing. The things we were amused by, uh, in the early 2000s, <laughs> well, what would you say was kind of the, whether it was inside or outside the classroom, the education you received that really helped you then in your career? Because I, I do think that having that background in you know, being able to figure something like that out, especially as a teenager, I can see the through line perfectly into what you do now in terms of the, the programming alone. And it's it's funny you mention that because as as I'm kind of reflecting on that, I, I realize that there are actually a, a a couple similarities to a lot of the, the the software that I that I work with these days, and we'll we'll definitely get in, into that here yes. shortly. Um, I. Going back to that that passion about space, when I was a senior in high school, um, I got accepted into Michigan State University, where I would end up doing my uh, undergrad. Um, but I did not initially know what major I wanted to go into. Um, as a senior, um, I had 
you know, 17, 18 years old, I'd gotten really into Dungeons and Dragons at that point, and I was spending a lot of my creative energies writing stories, writing characters, getting into a lot of, you know, things about how the game would work. And I wasn't so much as interested in the mechanics as I was in the plot of the game and, and how the characters could develop and, you know, all kinds of things related to that. And I really enjoyed a lot of the English classes and literature-related stuff that I'd done throughout high school. And so I initially thought, well, I'll go be an English major. And the day I told my dad that, uh, I love my dad to bits and pieces, but I definitely got that 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 look of, Okay. And he had started asking me a couple questions here and there. Have you have you published any writing? Like like do you do you see what you would want to do with this? And I realized no, I I don't know. I just think it's cool. Dad come and in with the we got <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, it, he he wasn't deliberately trying to push me away from it. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, ever an argument or a fight or anything like that. It was more just him coming from the background he had going, oh, okay, I don't understand. Have you have you thought this through? And as it turns out, 17 and 18-year-olds don't necessarily do that all that well. Um, but there was, there was a flyer that came in the mail since I had been accepted as a student to MSU. I don't know if this was an invite as a result or just some marketing they did, but there was a uh, science and technology showcase day for incoming... Uh, in, incoming students, prospective students. I don't I remember what the situation was. And I said, hey, we should we should go to this. And so we drove up uh, to East Lansing and it was a it was a big showcase put on by the College of Engineering, College of Natural Sciences, you know, a couple other other different departments there. And I got to see a bunch of really, really interesting things. Um, Michigan State's College of Engineering participates in it's a national competition in which they will have a team build a canoe out of concrete. And then you put it into a lake and you see if it floats. And if it floats, you end up having a, a race. Um, but it's been around for a long time. There's, there's, you know, any, any folks listening, if you were involved in an engineering program, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a chance that your, your department may have, have done that or is cur- currently doing that. Um, I think it's a couple hundred schools na- nationwide compete in that. Um, there's a similar competition in which it's a team of students that, um, have to build a bridge. It's called a steel steel bridge competition, uh, in which you have to conform to a set of requirements they give you. And then on competition day, they basically load your bridge with as much weight as it can handle until it begins to bend, deflect, or break, depending on how well you've built it. Um, so they had both of those on display along with... Um, there was a solar racing car competition. There was an F1 adjacent kind of competition, which it was all these engineering students that were building these yeah. things and then racing them and competing them and, you know, watching their bridge fall into the river or, you know, whatever the situation is. Um, at the time in the mid 2000s, MSU was really good at the uh, uh, con- concrete canoe um, competition. So there were a bunch of awards and stuff set out for that. And I was really blown, blown, blown away by that. Um, there were a couple folks I talked to in the computer science department that had some really neat, um, you know, really, really neat connections with the biomechanical engineering department. Just really, really neat things. And I went home that day. I was completely blown away by everything I saw. And, and I, I remember having, you know, kind of this internal monologue with with myself for a couple months after that. Well, that was so neat. What do I like? What do I want to do? And I settled on, I've always loved outer space. That'd be so cool. Let's do something with with studying space. I don't know what it is, but I'll figure something out. And I started looking at the different majors that were available. And the one that I found that was closest to it was astrophysics. 
Um, yeah, I'm not really a good math student, but that didn't hold me back at all whatsoever. So I went in and I declared I was going to be an astrophysics major. And uh, that did not go very well. Um, you know, you have to take a lot of math, you have to take a lot of physics classes. And I think the defining moment after really struggling a lot as a freshman at MSU, I remember going to um, the advisors to figure out signing up for classes for the following year. And the advisor says to me, well, you'll, you'll take this math class and you'll take this math class and this physics class and this physics lab. And I went, where's the space part? Because that's the cool stuff. And he kind of chuckled at me. He's like, there's a few astronomy electives you can take, but really this is going to be the core of what you're going to do. And I went, that's cool. I think I'm out. I'm going to go figure out something else. <laughs> so I was kind of back to the drawing board. I was 19 at this point, and I'd started to make some friends uh, at MSU. And I went to my very good friend, AJ, and I said, AJ, what do you do? And he said, well, I I'm a civil engineer. And I was like, what's that? He's like, well, I'm going to build buildings and bridges and stuff. And so I investigated that a little bit, and I saw the potential of, well, maybe I can take a lot of the math classes I've taken already that didn't get very good grades in, but I did pass, <laughs> um, and turn that into maybe building towards something in the engineering department. So I declared as a civil engineer, and I was super pumped about it. I was like, okay, all right, the space thing, that was neat, but you know what? That's kind of pie-in-the-sky pie in dreams thing. Let's. This is going to be something incredible. I'm going to make it my own. I I think maybe I could turn this into, I'm going to be really good at like the structural engineering. I'm going to figure out how buildings are built and how all the steel works, and maybe I can go be an architect one day, and I still had these like great romantic notions. Um, and that's how I got into the College of Engineering. And within civil engineering, there's a lot of different disciplines. You can do that structural element, and it's strength of material, strength mm -hmm. of steel, strength of concrete. Um, how, how do you actually build a structure that's going to stand up on its own? Um, whether it's a structure like a building or a bridge or a tank or all kinds of different elements, there's a lot of civil-related work that goes into infrastructure, buildings, construction. Um, there's geotechnical sciences, which if you love playing with dirt, it's the science of dirt. And when you start to build that building, you've got to dig a giant hole first. How do you make sure that that hole doesn't collapse on itself? How do you make sure that when it rains, your building doesn't fall into a giant pit? So on and so forth. Um, there's environmental, and then, there, you know, there's, there's a couple others, water, um, for the folks out there that are involved in this, forgive me for not mentioning your particular area. And then there's transportation. Transportation is a huge section of it because that is anything involving movement of people and stuff. So that can be trains, that can be buses, that can be public tran transportation, that can be cars, that can be going back to bridges, airplanes, boats, all kinds of stuff. Literally trains, planes, and automobiles. Like <laughs> Literally trains, planes, and automobiles. Um, and part of MSU's program is that you had to take classes in four of the seven disciplines that they oh, offer. Okay. So in addition to those structural classes, I sign up for the transportation classes. And some of the professors that I had in those transportation classes, I think was probably that turning point of, oh, there's something really, really, really cool here. There's something that I'm good at. It's not just um, math that I tend to struggle with. There's a lot of um, I saw it as almost like trying to solve a puzzle. And I think that the way that my professors presented some of those transportation classes had that tremendous influence on me of, this is interesting. I want to know more. I want to learn more. I want to be able to speak to this very well. 
I love that. I This happens every episode, I feel like now, where someone gets to either college or even grad school, or even if, if they're going to trade school, and they start out with one idea, see the reality, and it's not a giving up by any means necessary. It's a pivot, and then the pivot turns out to be even more interesting than you know the yep. original. And also, side note, <laughs> Concrete Canoe would be a banger of a band name. So, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, no, like everything about it is cool. I honestly, so I wound up participating on our Steel Bridge team, and even to this day, I'm like, why didn't I do Concrete Canoe? Right. I, I thought it was the cooler one at all points in time, and instead, I was like, well, I know somebody on Steel Bridge, so I'll just follow my doing. friend yeah. Chris, and I'll just do that one. Yeah, but yeah, no, dude, it was so cool. It's literally a full size canoe made of concrete, you push it in the water and you can row it to the other side of the river. Like just, it's, it's mind boggling that you can figure that out. My mind is blown of people listening. (laughs) I'm doing the like hands coming out of the side of my face. Like I just, anything with engineering fascinates me. And I was nodding my head vigorously when you were talking about math, because who among us has not been defeated by a math class? I feel like I've talked about this before, but um, with my, psych degree I having to take stats for psych was the only class I didn't make an A in in my entire like life period and I just I was like if this is what working in a lab is going to be like no thanks Um, so I absolutely feel you on that well so from there did you after getting your undergrad did you have to go to grad school or was it just going straight to work no, I um I had the incredible um unfortunate situation where I graduated right into the Great Recession. Um I had an internship set up in the fall of 2008 and it was okay, I'm good to go. This is what I'm going to do. It's a, it's a local spot. Uh, I I got my first car at that point. I was able to drive to work, take care of my classes. All I had to do was not screw up and I'd have a job waiting for me. And I was, nope, nope, um, nope, that did not work out very well. Um, I think it was, I think it was December or January, right around the turn of the year there that uh, my boss came to me and said, we have to let you go. It's nothing that you've done. We don't have any money to pay you. Uh, So that was really tough. Um, I went back to my student job um, a couple weeks later fortunately um i had had a job on campus as an undergrad that internship aside i had kind of had this position for almost the entire time i was there i'd worked in um facilities management and facilities maintenance with msu um msu is a four square mile campus and they own most of the uh, utilities on campus and so they also have um so there's different names for it uh, here in Michigan. It's called Misdig. In other places, you might know it as No Dig, but it's you, uh, basically u- utility location yeah. ser- services. And so you get this little magic wand that makes makes weird noises, and you go locate where the pipes or the conduit or the cables are underground, and you mark it with little flags and and s- spray paint. So I I got that job as a student job uh, my sophomore year and worked that for several years until I got that internship. And when that internship didn't work out, I went back. Um, luckily my boss on campus said, yeah, come on back. I don't, I don't have anyone else. That's fine. Uh, so I was, I was able to turn that then into a position that related to not just the mystic and construction, I, I, you know, uh, location services, 
but he brought me into the GIS department and MSU at the time had maintained this large database of where all of the utilities are and everything was located with GPS down to the exact coordinates of what the building corners were and where the roads were and where all these uh, utilities were. So he got me into, again, some of these weird esoteric utility systems that I then started to learn a fair, fair bit about. And again, this is foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm like, wow, this is actually, again, it turned out to be super beneficial for you. I feel like. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I, I was lucky enough that after, after the, the initial crash happened and I was laid off, I still had a job to go back to. Um, and I graduated in, uh, December of 2009. Um, I, so going back to the math conversation, um, I, I am an engineer that's not good at math. And I think that the lesson from, from my career is that you can do that and that's okay because I think a lot of engineering, the perception of it sometimes is it boils down to solve for X. And if you're not good at solving for X, then you shouldn't be doing this. And the reality is that there's so much more to it. Um, so with, with that in mind, like I graduated not only in a terrible recession in a terrible situation, especially here in the state of Michigan, but it's not like I had, you know, I, I was not a straight A student. Um, you know, my, my engineering GPA separate from my overall GPA was attractive enough that I was able to put together a resume and at least mention some things and look at least like a halfway decent, intelligent, you know, fresh, fresh out of college candidate, but I had nothing special, nothing, nothing unique. And so in that initial job hunt, I kind of found because of the situation everywhere, I'm the new grad competing with the guys that already have five or 10 years of experience. And, you know, in some, some cases they already have their licensure, which, you know, I was far away from at that point. Um, So it didn't go well. And I think the low point for me, and I don't think I'll forget this as long as I live. There was a city engineer job that I had applied for and I got an interview for, and I was rejected. And I had been, you know, trying to get some feedback on, is it something I didn't interview well on or how can I improve things? You know, looking for something, anything to grasp on because obviously the other guy had something more. And a lot of the responses that, of that in, in that time that I got was, well, you're a really great candidate, but the other person just had more experience. Sure. And so for this city engineer job, the response I got was, you were a fantastic candidate. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. But the guy we hired has already got 10 years of experience as a field technician, and he just got his GED. So we went with him. And I don't, I still don't know how to process that, to be entirely honest with you, because I started looking at what did I just spend all of my time getting a degree for? What did I spend all of my time learning all this stuff for? Uh, because it doesn't seem like I'm going to be able to do it. I frankly didn't think I was going to make it. Um, that turned into about eight months of continuous rejections. And it was, I I wound up going to grad school solely because I thought I needed some kind of direction. Mm, yeah. And my boss at MSU had been gracious enough to convert my student position to a temporary position so that I could continue to work as not a student yeah, yeah. since I had graduated. And eventually the funding for that ran out and he said, listen, I don't have anything else for you. I'm really sorry. You're a great employee. I literally can't pay you. So unless you want to keep working here for free, I think May is your, you know, is your last month here. 
So it was like, well, okay, I have no job prospects. Uh, now I don't have a job. Um, I got to figure something out. And so I started looking at graduate programs and that's what brought me to Western Michigan University over in uh, Kalamazoo on the West side. And that's how I got to grad school. So it was, it was never necessarily in the cards, but it became a necessity. I feel like that's the story for a lot of people who graduated in that same time frame. Uh, and it still happens today where like it just <laughs> now today, I feel like things have just gotten it's a stiffer competition straight out of undergrad but when you said they told you that he had just gotten his GED I mean truly again another mind-blown moment and not in a positive way this time (laughs) yeah no that was that was that was really tough (laughs) what was the turning point then in your career if if you know obviously we're in grad school at this point in our timeline then you graduate grad school I'm assuming there was some kind of process there too, where maybe not an internship, but an equivalent once you were close to getting out or out. Yeah. Um, grad school went a lot better than undergrad in terms of the academic side. I, 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 I kind of tend to frame it these days as I had to learn how to not be a bratty teenager at MSU and learn how to build a new social life and figure out how to you know, have my own apartment and all of those very basic adulting type type skills. Uh, and, and I kind of got wound up, as I think a lot of folks do, in the social element of undergrad. And, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, sometimes Monday, too, you know, was dedicated to um, more social related activities than actual school. Um, when I got to grad school, I said, OK, nobody told me I needed to be here. Nobody told me this was the next step. This is the next step. I am here for myself. I have to make this work or else. So I went from being the very quiet kid in the back of the room that never said anything and was terrified to ever be called on to I became the kid in the front row taking the notes, asking if the homework assignment is in fact X, Y, Z or not, because I wanted to get it all done. I wanted to do it the right way. I wanted to prove to myself first and foremost that, no, this is actually a field that I'm still interested in and that I feel I belong here, that I, that I deserve to have this chance. Uh, and so that went a lot better. I wound up graduating um, with, you know, much, much closer to straight A's. I still had a B or two here and there, but um, it was, it, I was incredibly proud of the work that I was able to do there. Uh, and I'd also conducted a master's thesis in about six, six months from start, start to finish. So I had a lot more to offer on my resume at that point in terms of connections and internships and research that I had done and was able to speak a lot more intelligently. So I kind of looking back, see my undergrad was, I need to not be a teenager anymore. And my grad school is really where I became what I would consider an engineer or engineer capable. I love that. I love that. I think for people who were a little bit more, I don't want to say it's not introverted. It's almost just like in our shells, I guess, in high school. I mean, undergrad very much felt like that for me as well. Like I had to completely learn how to be, I mean, an adult, you know, like I didn't have for the first time in in our whole lives, we didn't have somebody telling us like, you know, okay, soccer practice is at six or band practice is at six. Exactly. Then I'm going to come pick you up and you have a curfew and yada, yada, you know, so I, I relate to that heavily. Undergrad was such a was such an exciting exploration of yes. that. We're just like you you don't like I don't have to do my homework today. I can figure that out tomorrow. Let's go to the bar, or you know, 
the house party down the street or whatever. I'll figure it out later. Whoops, I'm hungover today. Well, that's okay. I'll just do it tomorrow. And just like the freedom that came with undergrad versus, you know, the the regimen that we had in high school. It was it was like I think I think a lot of folks need that space to explore and figure out who they actually I don't think anybody truly knows who they're going to be at that age, but I think you owe it to yourself when you finish high school to have that time to figure out what do you like? What do you want to do? Not just what somebody else has told you to do. And that that journey, I think, takes a different form for every single person out there. Um, you know, college allows a lot of us to have very similar experiences. And for me, when I was at my most stressed, when I was at Michigan State, I actually took solace in that a lot of, yeah, you know what, this week really sucks, but there's 50,000 kids around me that are also having a bad week too. And I, I latched onto that quite a bit. But I, I think that having that freedom, it's, it's, it's important to how you develop as a person. And then when you realize some of the things that you want to start to focus on after a couple of years, you know, for me, it was, okay, I'm going to commit myself fully to grad school because I want to be an engineer. I want to be a civil engineer. And I was in the mindset finally of, I don't know anybody in this town. I'm not necessarily here to make friends first and foremost. I'm here to do a job. And my job was, was grad school. And that's what I focused on. And I'm to this day, very proud of the work that I was able to do from where I was to where I was able to get. I started giggling um, because when you said I wasn't here to make friends, of course, this will shock nobody listening, but my first thought was just like every reality show competition ever. Like (laughs) I wasn't there to make friends. Like, but it's so true. Like you, I, you said you said so much that I'm just sitting here nodding my head, you know, again vigorously agreeing with. I think it was just so important for you to allow yourself that space to grow. And you know, you get done with grad school, you get into this job. Did you did you start at a firm or did you go more straight to like a city work? I know those can be two very different lifestyles. So so this is where some of the 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 complication comes in with how this whole thing works. Um, I guess to briefly preface it, I, I, I graduated from Western Michigan in December of 2013, and I was thrown into that job hunt, which it, for the first several months went the exact same way that the first one did. And um, I'm, I don't want to trivialize the concept of PTSD, but there were a lot of, of feelings in which it was like, here we go again. It's, we're doing the same thing. We're getting the same results. I must be doing something wrong again. And it wasn't until a couple months into that job hunt that I just kind of came to the acceptance that a job hunt is, a, is results on a roulette wheel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what you do because you, you don't have enough control over all of the inputs to decide what the final outcome is. You put your resume there, you do your best to interview, and at that point, it's in the hands of the interview gods. Um, you know, whatever that may be, selection committee, individual manager, somebody that's got a real cranky day might just say, I didn't like how, how his face looked that day. And, th- and that's it. And it might be something as dumb as that. And I wound up with a couple different offers. And the one that I wound up selecting uh, brought me back to the Metro Detroit area in which I was working for a private consulting firm that had a full-time contract with a public agency to provide traffic signal operations engineering. And so that was, I was able to get right into 
stuff related to traffic lights, which even in grad school, a lot of my classes had focused on transportation and construction, which is bridges, roads, materials, um, a little bit of simulation software, research, statistics, safety, all these things around general concepts of transportation. And it was my first job that got me to traffic signals. And we'll kind of get in a little bit into what all this does. But if when you're driving around at any signalized intersection, you'll see on one of the four corners, there's going to be a large metal box. Um, sometimes they're strapped to one of the light poles. Sometimes they're on a concrete pad. Um, but inside that cabinet is all of the equipment that controls what the traffic light is doing and how long it's green, how long it's yellow, how long it's red. And my first day on the job was the first time I saw the inside of a traffic cabinet. It is a lot of blinking, flashing lights and, and bright screens with lots of buttons to push. And I was instantly hooked. I could not get enough of it. See, I would, <laughs> and I'm a little bit disappointed that it wasn't like a little Keebler elf tree with the lights. <laughs> 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 uh, but I love that you kind of were just like, not thrown into it, but but thrown into it. I mean, obviously you had some working knowledge of the basics to get the job, but there was no, there's not like traffic light school. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Um, a lot of, at least my experience with engineering education through uh, the mid to the mid 2000s to the, to the mid teens is, and I'm sure there's a lot of folks that have gone through engineering school that will be able to relate to this as well as other fields, obviously where you, the school teaches you the fundamental bedrock concepts. Um, and a lot of that in engineering does ultimately boil down to that solve for X. And what I think drew me into transportation and then ultimately traffic is that the solving for X, it really only ends up being a single corner of the entire menu of what you need to do. And it becomes a genuine exercise in can you solve engineering problems? Do you understand the constraints you have? Do you understand what what lever influences what decision? And it becomes a much more interesting problem to solve because you have to logic your way through it. And yes, of course, there is still ultimately a math component to a lot of the specific mechanics at an at at a traffic light in order for us to make them work safely. But that becomes just a smaller piece in the overall puzzle. And I was instantly hooked because what my takeaway from, from both of my degrees in school is that it taught me how to think like an engineer. I still suck at math. I will, I will happily pull out a calculator to do the most basic of math computations, and I'm not afraid to say that at all whatsoever. Because that ultimately is a tool you need to use to solve the greater problem. And the question in traffic becomes... How do you how do you find a solution that works for traffic right now? And just because we solved for X, it doesn't mean that that is the optimal be all end all solution. It's simply the solution for right now. And next Friday, it might work totally different. And I was hooked onto that. Forgive my ignorance, but when I see the people who in their little yellow you know safety vests and they have what looks like a camera on a stick and they're like measuring something, what? what is that? Because I, <laughs> I see it all the time and I'm like, oh my bad. Like, I don't want to walk through this, but I think that's the point. Like, I, <laughs> I, I briefly did that as well. Um, that is most likely what you're seeing is surveying equipment in which they are 
um, they there there will usually be a little prism or a camera or a sensor on one pole, and it'll be shooting back uh, to a larger device that's also on like a large yellow yellow tripod. Um, that's typically a surveying crew that will get the exact dimensions, specifications, and GPS data for us to create a map of whatever piece of land that they're actually doing that on. So if you see that at an intersection, it'll be to get the exact, you know, down to, you know, the hundredth or thousandth, um, you know, foot um, um, accuracy of exactly where that curb line is, where the road is, where the utilities are. And then that goes into um, uh, CAD drafting plans, and that becomes the basis for a construction project and your instruction manual of how you actually build something out there. So all that stuff becomes incredibly important because that is your initial data set for how you build a road or how you change a road or a building or utility or all, all kinds of things. Okay, so I wasn't too far off there. No, not at I'm all. I'm always just like, what are y'all surveying? Because they do it at intersections, well, at least in my neighborhood, where there's already a light. And so I was like, wait a minute, like, are you guys changing something? Um, I find all of these little intricacies, again, very fascinating because it's not part of my day-to-day and it's always just things I've wondered. But um, yeah, what's the, so you guys measure it out. Let's say you have the traffic light up. How do you adjust? Like if you notice that, hey, we're getting a lot of complaints about this light is too long or too short. And I'm sure people think that no matter how many times you adjust it. So <laughs> there, there is a very interesting psychological effect that happens when you're sitting at a red light. And I, I would love to see someone figure out or conduct research related to it someday. Um, because if you're sitting at a red light and there's no one else there, you may have only been sitting there for 10 seconds. You're like, why am I here for 10 minutes? This is outrageous. I was going to say, it feels like the longest I've ever sat at a light. And I I feel that myself, where it's like, well, come on, what are we doing? And I know how all of it works. Um, so the 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 psychological side of, of how traffic signals work ultimately ends up kind of bubbling upwards into a lot of things that we start to look at because what agencies being being public agencies that maintain traffic systems you are ultimately beholden to the 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 motoring public and so the agency that i worked with at the time i still work with them i've worked with folks you know in a lot of different places at this point almost every single one has some kind of public input opinion and so you can either send them a tweet or, well, maybe not a tweet anymore, uh, you know, or a Facebook message. <laughs> never see it. Yeah, you'll probably never see it anymore. Or there will be a phone call or, you know, a, 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 a phone line or, a, or an email inbox, some form of, of input for you as the motoring public to call them and say, wow, your traffic lights suck. You need to fix all of them. And that's what that's what a lot of it sometimes boils down to. And it, I think it's because some of this stuff is, you know, to come back to that word, this is a very niche field. And you never see someone actively changing the light. You, that's they, they they run themselves, so you have no idea what what's doing what's doing the thing that's keeping you from getting home after a long terrible day at, at work. And you go, wow, these guys all suck at their jobs, and the, and and that's it. Um, and so a lot of that first position that I had out of out of grad school was taking those complaints in for. Um, the agency I work for has got about 750 traffic signals across the entire county. I was responsible for about 250 of them. So anything related to public 
complaints or construction projects or changes to the equipment or a study that needed to be done um, or if there was a major incident or a crash that was affecting traffic patterns on a particular day, that all boiled down to basically me. So I saw a lot of these complaints coming in. And some, some, sometimes it's the person is 100% spot on and you've identified the issue. A lot of it is let's parse what they're saying. Go take a look at what the situation is out there and go, okay, I absolutely understand how this person thought they were waiting so long because I'm trying to make a left turn out of my neighborhood. There's nobody on the main street. Why can't I just go? And so it turned into yeah. it's it becomes a little bit of public education. It turns into opportunities to find how how can we help people understand what the traffic lights are doing in a way that, you know, almost brings in a little bit of buy-in even. Like, yeah, this stuff is really, really cool. Let me show you how it all works. Let me talk to you about how it all works. Because if if I find it interesting, you might as well. And then that, you know, just in general points to excitement and enthusiasm and interest in understanding what this infrastructure stuff around you is doing. And I think that that's really cool. No, I'm fascinated. I have so very little knowledge of that. And I think too, when people understand how something works, like you said, there's a buy-in to a degree of, it's almost like, oh, this is what my tax dollars are going to sometimes, you know, like that's, uh, I think there should be more public works <laughs> education, which speaking of, I have been waiting for this part. I have eagerly ask Josh listeners to help me debunk some traffic light myths. Um, <laughs> I want to hear all of it. I want to hear, you know, are there sensors in the ground underneath certain traffic stops? Yes, that there are. Yes. There okay. Are. I feel less stupid now for believing that <laughs> you, you will in most places, if it's a sensor in the ground, you will see it. Um, in some oh. places, when you pull up to the intersection before the big white stop bar that's painted on the pavement, you will sometimes see a little rectangular cutout, mm -hmm. um, usually with you know an extra line that's going towards towards the sidewalk. That's called a loop de uh, detector, and it's it's decades old te technology. It's basically just a coil of metal metal wire that puts up an electromagnetic field. And when your car drives over it, it breaks the field, which sends a signal back to the traffic signal cabinet and says, I am detecting a vehicle. Um, it's very old. Um, folks are using it less and less because when you put things in pavement, if you live in places that get snow, uh, snow plows will immediately tear, tear them up. If you do any type of road work, you're going to immediately break the loop and then you have to replace it, so on and so forth. And there's there's been a couple different versions now of the, of that in-ground technology. But what you will also see, uh, this is very location dependent because it's based on the agency that's operating that particular intersection, but you will see sensors um, up on the traffic signals themselves. So if you're ever driving around and you see a little camera up on a stick pointed down at you, it is not a surveillance camera. It is a vehicle detection camera. And it's doing something very similar to what that loop is doing, just using motion uh, sensing. And it'll, it'll draw a little virtual uh, detection zone. And as soon as you break that zone on that part of the camera, it'll go, I see a car, and it'll put a call into the traffic controller that's back inside uh, the cabinet. And then that will help dictate how the traffic signal is going to operate for the next one to three minutes. 
Wow. I so the coil is kind of like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone, <laughs> and then the traffic camera is more like a uh, Mission Impossible dipping through the lasers. Yes, ride. yes, I love it. <laughs> exactly. And there's there's video camera systems. There are radar based uh, uh, systems. Um, there is some newer technology called lidar that they're starting to bring to it, which it, I'm going to upset somebody in the audience that works with this. But lidar is fancy radar. Um, sorry, it just it just is. Um, there's a lot of different ways in which we can detect if a car is at the intersection. Um, if you if you do tend to spot that stuff, you will also notice intersections where you don't see any of that. Uh, in which case, the the intersection is probably working on pre-timed operations. It's called, which is it's basically doing the same thing all day, every day, forever, because there is no external input into changing how the operation works. And yes, there's there's a lot of nuance to that. I can change how a traffic signal works based on the time of day. Um, I can run what's called different patterns, which is basically I'm dictating um, if you're going to work in the morning, I might change the amount of green time that you're going to get going northbound. And then I'm going to adjust that for the afternoon when you're coming home so that you get more green time in you know going southbound, just as a very, very basic example. Um, if I get sensors involved in that, I can start to make the operations a little bit snappier, a little bit more efficient. Um, in some cases, depending on the size of the roadway, that pre-timed operation can actually work really, really well. Uh, because then I get what's you know called like the green wave effect of every light you hit is always green and green and green and green. Because I'm basically measuring how long I think it's going to take a group of cars to get from one signal to the, to the next. So there's lots of different strategies involved, and this is where it gets into that. If you pull up to that to that signal, and every single day you're waiting two minutes, and there's nobody there, you have that venue to call and go, "You guys suck. Why does this still still do this?" And it's there's so much interesting nuance to it that I find those puzzles to be a delight to try to solve, because the puzzle that you solve on Sunday, December seventeenth, might be completely invalid next Sunday, uh, and it's it's. As much as we look at trends in traffic, and I can tell you approximate traffic patterns, the each individual day is going to be completely different because I don't know if tomorrow morning on my my way to work, uh, the right three lanes of the road I take are shut down because there's a major crash. If that happens, traffic is going to change completely, and therefore the traffic signal that normally works fine is going to suck. I love it. What's one more kind of misconception or myth you think that people have about traffic lights and, and traffic engineering in general? Um, there is an unfortunate level of complication with how these systems work that your drive to work may go from a city system to a county system to a state system. And unfortunately, um, not all public government agencies tend to necessarily communicate with each other all day, every day or hold to the same set of standards or hold to the same set of requirements. And that's because ultimately that city has their city grid that they're responsible for, and that county has their county grid that they're responsible for, and the state is doing their thing on their own state trunk lines. So it's not necessarily that it's a negative and this needs to be fixed. It's just a reality of how these systems work and who's responsible for what. So when you're driving to work, you may go from one system to another to another, and they are instructed to operate completely differently. And it's not because of any one particular thing where it's, well, you know, we really want you to stop at every single light in this little downtown district because we said so. 
it could be. I've yet to encounter where that's actually the truth. It's just a matter of you have now gone to a different part of the traffic system that has a completely different set of resources and goals and folks that are running it. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, about how, you know, highways are mostly state DOTs and then obviously more surface streets are going to be city owned for the most part. So I think it's just stuff that impacts our day to day life in America because we are a car dependent country that so many people don't think about. Um, I, you've spawned a million other ideas in my head for like, well, now I want to talk to, you know, the person that does <laughs> the water utilities in the city of Atlanta, things like that. Um, have our own little Richard scary city of podcast episodes. Um, and yeah, it's all interconnected. I feel like I do. I, I have worked with folks in the Atlanta area, uh, in particular with, <laughs> with GDOT. Um, yeah, I know it's a rough gig. It's, it is, it is, uh, a very challenging area, but overall the, the system they have there, um, is advanced compared to other parts of the country and what they have available and they do a really good job. See listeners, if you're in the Atlanta area with me, I know traffic is bad, but did you hear that? We have it on the record. We have an advanced traffic light it's, system. It's, so. it's true. And again, it boils down to that. If you're stuck in traffic for the next 15 minutes or you're stuck at that red light and you don't understand why, it's difficult to have an appreciation for the amount of engineering that goes into it. And it's it's it goes back to that. This is such a niche, tiny, hidden industry that there is that public messaging element of this is how this stuff works. This is why this is done this way. And it is ultimately, you know, you as a end user of that system don't necessarily see all the steps that go in into it. So I know I sound like a, like a crazy person. I, I am, I am sure folks that know me are going to send me a message after this comes out going, what are you talking about? I swear I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I love it. Well, do you feel, I guess this is going to be a different version of the question that I always end on. Um, do you feel like you've made it? And if not, what keeps you going? And what would making it, I guess, even look like in your industry? Yeah, so there's a, there's a particular pet topic that I kind of want to hit on with this. Um, again, kind of going back to what I think a lot of engineering education in universities looks like or at least what my experience was with it, is a lot of that solve for X emphasis. And again, it is not to not to downplay the importance of those fundamentals because ultimately you have to start somewhere and you always start with the fundamentals. Um, there's a lot in civil engineering that leads to the necessity um, of getting your professional engineer's license. Uh, and that is uh, you take a very long, difficult, terrifying exam uh, for about eight hours uh, with the state licensure board. And then they give you uh, a piece of paper that says you are legally allowed to stamp engineering plans that says this is safe and, and okay to build. So there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. I will say to folks that are trying to get into this or have just an interest or you're starting out or whatever the situation is, there are ways to succeed in this type of industry without having to go down that specific path. I distinctly remember for as much as of an influence as my professors had on me, a lot of the discussion about what career paths look like at that time was always when you work for the DOT or when you are a private consultant. 
It was never if. And I think part of my my career journey, I guess is a word I could use, um, has found that there are many more doors open and there are many more avenues in which you can be part of this grand scheme of things that we're doing. Um, and don't don't sell yourself short if you may have the soft skills or the logic abilities, but you don't have the math. On the flip side, if you are really good at math, you may be incredibly good at a large portion of what some of the work is done, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you um, will be the best manager of a group of, of people. You may not be able to be the best at what that marketing message or outreach needs needs to be. And those are all important parts of making all of this work correctly. You might be the engineer that's perfectly suited to go find the next funding source for your very large project at the county level, or you might be the guy that just wants to wait for the money to come in and you sit there and you build those plans and you're incredibly good at it. And all of those are valuable and important pathways that you can take throughout this. So I myself do not have my professional engineering license because again, it goes back. I'm not good at math and I'm, I'm 37. I could still become good at math, but I, I'm, I, I think the probabilities are probably pretty low at this point. But I've been able to be in this industry for just about 10 years now, and I've found ways in which I can contribute on the private side and on the public side um, with the skill set that I, that I do have. And it's, a lot of it stems from, are you, are, you, are you interested? Can you communicate? Can you come up with those, those ideas? Can you apply yourself? And you may, you may have things that, you know, we call it work because it is, it is work. You're going to have to do things that you may not necessarily enjoy every single day or that you may not necessarily be, be good at every day either. But it's a part of just finding the ways in which you know that you can contribute to something that I think understanding that there are multiple pathways, there are multiple ways to contribute in this becomes incredibly important. And I don't know how much that type of message can can filter down to the university level necessarily, because I found it just through pure experience on, on my part. But I think it would be such a shame if we are losing folks that could be part of this teeny tiny industry because they are shied away from, I'll never get that, that PE license. I'm not, I'm, I just can't sit for an, an eight hour exam. And I'll tell you, I can't either. <laughs> I love it. I, that's such a universal message. I just agree with it wholeheartedly. Again, it was another one of the moments people listening where <laughs> Josh was explaining and I'm just sitting away from the mic, nodding my head like, yes, <laughs> preach sermon. Um, <laughs> I think soft skills are, so underrated in uh, STEM fields and and honestly the more that I have you know a, a day job so to speak I think in all areas of life <laughs> yeah there's there's a lot of challenges I'm sure are not necessarily unique to my field um, you know it's you you have to be able to communicate your ideas and if you're not able to do that you will have a different set of challenges than you were expecting to have yeah. Uh, what a good note to go out on. I appreciate you taking your time and uh, stopping by to talk about this. I was super hype. I know people listening are going to be <laughs> very excited to learn about this as well. So I really appreciate it, Josh. Um, well, y'all, that is one more episode in the books this week. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review, tell a friend to tell a friend. And if you have a job you would like me to cover, feel free to pitch it. Until next time.